people who I would say, you know, maybe like held an insurrection in our uh, Apple podcast comments. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Girls Like Us, the podcast that asks you, what does a degree in literature get you? With the answer, a podcast about children's books. I'm Franny. And I'm Sophie. Um, we just, and we're going to get it right into it today, guys. We are going to get right into it. I feel like we're... And this is not us. Us getting right into it today, I just want to let you know, is not us capitulating to the masses no. who told us to not talk about our lives on the podcast, because I think we probably will talk about our lives on the podcast today. Yeah. So this we is not a capitulation. Strong. We do stand strong. Um, so let's get right into Pretty Little Liars today, just because I think we're so excited. We um, are so excited. We already had... Most podcast episodes, just to give you guys a peek behind the curtain, we will just have a basically a 30-minute mutual therapy session and then go right into the pod. Right. So today we were like, we did that we just off gotta mic do this. Beforehand. We did that off mic, yeah. Um, yeah, so let's get into it. First of all, like, let's just get, like, initial reactions because that's kind of how we ended the intro pod last week is like i like wondering what our initial reactions would be so do you kind of want to share like yeah so i thought that this book was really really well written um and one thing that i liked about this in comparison to the click is that the plot was pretty well mapped out in this book it had a good arc uh, I liked the changing of perspectives between characters. And there's also, like, some, like, omniscient third-person stuff that I really enjoyed and I thought was kind of uh, interesting to see in a YA book. Yeah. What about you? Um, yeah, I like that you brought up the structure right away because that's kind of what I want to talk about first. Mm-hmm. Because I think that's something that we often would complain about in the Pretty Little Liars books is, I think, our... Or not the Pretty Little Liars book, the Clicks book. The Click books is that we would often complain like this book feels like it was written in three hours and never you know the author never took a second pass at it like the structure felt very loose there were chapters at a time that felt as if they could have kind of just been mismatched with other chapters and like it wouldn't have really made a difference um but this book from from, you know, the choices with the narration to kind of how and when the author chooses to reveal information to us and how there's a little bit more maturity assumed in the reader to make certain connections. Um, It all feels very, very cohesive. And from the introduction passage, like... Which I'm going to read now. Yeah. Yeah, please go ahead. Because there's... Before you read it, I just want to say, like, it's incredibly smart in both setting the mood and letting us know what some of the themes are going to be, but also implicating the reader in what's about to happen. Absolutely. I have to say, though, before the introduction, the quote on the the Incredible. quote going into this book is, three may keep a secret if two of them are dead. Benjamin Franklin. Which is... <laughs> Three may keep a secret, a secret if two, two of, them, of are, them, are <laughs> them are dead. And that's what I love about the writing of the theme song for the TV show is that they were they said, no, actually, we're going to make our own quote. The Ben Franklin quote to us is not yeah. good enough source material. 
No, and it wasn't. And I think that they improved that quote. I have to say of Ben Franklin, <laughs> not it. a very, not one of his best. <laughs> his better quote would be like, "Look at oh, this lightning! Yeah, exactly. <laughs> ah, I'm electrocuted! Yeah, <laughs> das me screaming!" Um, <laughs> so um, the book starts off with this introduction. Imagine it's a couple of years ago, the summer between seventh and eighth grade. You're tanned from lying out next to your rock-lined pool. You've got on your new juicy sweats. Remember when everybody wore those? And your mind's on your crush, the boy who goes to that other prep school whose name we won't mention and who folds jeans at Abercrombie in the mall. You're eating your Cocoa Krispies just how you like them, doused in skim milk, and you see this girl's face on the side of the milk carton, missing. She's cute, probably cuter than you, and has a feisty look in her eyes. You think, hmm, maybe she likes soggy Cocoa Krispies too. And you'd bet she'd think Abercrombie Boy was a hottie as well. You wonder how someone so, well, so much like you went missing. You thought only girls who entered beauty pageants ended up on the sides of milk cartons. Well, think again. It's so incredible. good. It's, it's so it, good. And I forgot about this passage until I, um, you know, reread the book this week. And I literally was like, I remember this almost word for word like the imagery of you're eating your cocoa krispies just how you like them doused in skim milk it's so sensory and that idea of sitting by the pool Mm -hmm. it makes you feel like you're there right which is the whole point of most YA literature is is children wanting to integrate themselves into that world totally like a sense of place and a sense Mm -hmm. of like aspirationalism um and so i think what's so sophisticated about this though and what hints at us is that we're entering a series of books that is written for a grade level of reader higher than what we were previously reading is the mix of that sensory detail with the next thought which is how does she go missing exactly like yeah which doesn't seem at first kind of gloss to be like as poignant really as i think it is like the you wonder how someone so well so much like you went missing like Mm -hmm. it seems to be a very obvious maybe even like dateliney catch but when you mix it with all of these like super in time super in place sensory details Mm -hmm. it just i don't know it hints at us that we're at a level of writing like this author really knows what she wants this book to be about and how she how exactly she wants to make us feel at an exact moment in the book yeah it's it's a good intro um so we were talking about should we just run through all four girls storylines and then we can get into details yeah let's do it who are these people franny how and how do they know each other so uh the story is about four main girls and one friend who went missing. So it starts off when they're all in seventh grade. And one of the girls, Allie, who is kind of the queen bee of uh, their group of friends, goes missing. Flash forward, they're all about to enter 11th grade. Some of them have changed. Some of them haven't really, but um, Allie is still missing. Um, So just a quick rundown of that. Um, Aria is the artsy one. Hannah is the one who had an eating disorder or still has an eating disorder, but is popular and hot now, but was dorky in seventh grade. Emily is the closeted gay one. And Spencer is the uber perfectionist. Um, yeah. So 
kind of like Franny said, all of the girls, you know, it's been three years. And that's one of the big differences, too, that I think is important to note between the book series and the TV show is that the TV show, it's a distance of one year um, Mm -hmm. since the disappearance of Allison and the events of the first, um, the first turning. Um, But in the book, it makes a lot more sense for it to be three years because we really have a sense of another theme that I think is really present in this book is like how people mature and how relationships mature because we really get a good like, you know, seventh grade to or eighth grade to 11th grade. Like that's a pretty significant chunk of time of like someone's adolescence. Um, So I would say like, Hannah has definitely changed the most. Mm-hmm. Um, so Hannah... Just because she went from being, like, from bottom of the barrel. Right. Like, the dorkiest girl at school to the most popular girl at school. I don't know if she was the dorkiest. Like, we have those Mona... Oh, that's The Mona true. friend group seems to yeah. be very dorky. Um, yeah, that's true. In the beginning of the book. But Hannah, she... Her parents have gotten divorced... In seventh grade, I believe, because her father cheated on her mother and basically pieced With out. With a nurse to, practitioner. You know those girls are all fucking sluts. <laughs> Dude. I, I'm going to say that right as I get my COVID vaccine. I'm just going to yeah. go on a tirade. <laughs> I know you're a I'm sure that won't go slut. out well for me. <laughs> yeah, right. That's, you know, if girls, if a nurse practitioner is anywhere Slides into near your, your DMs. Man, yeah. run dude get him as far away from nurse practitioners as you can listen if you get a text and then (laughs) next to this girl's name it says n.p Ooh, you better run (laughs) you better get out of there if she's asking to take his temperature (laughs) (laughs) and we're not talking about rns rns we love you rns would never go near your man or your woman <laughs> rns are keeping it to themselves rns already have a man at home that they are taking <laughs> they're care bringing of. home the bacon yeah. yeah they want nothing to do with your man but those fucking loose <laughs> nurse practitioners uh-uh could uh-uh. it be me <laughs> <laughs> um just kidding, nurse practitioners. We love you. You can yeah, steal please, our men anytime. Please give me the COVID vaccine. Please. Please. We want it. We want it. <laughs> Someone um, was saying on a different podcast, did, this is an off-topic thing, but um, did you hear that some CVSs are just like giving random people the vaccine because once they pull it out for the day, it like goes bad. So they're no. just like giving those doses. I'm what trying to I scheme say? away. Nurse practitioners are loose. They're pulling out COVID vaccines <laughs> when they don't out need COVID them. Vaccines for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. They this say, is... what do you want? Two, three? <laughs> <laughs> they're like, I don't have any commitments or obligations. Um, <laughs> I can vaccine you all day long. So, like I said, Hannah's dad cheats on her mother with a nurse practitioner and just, pe- like, completely pieces out, like, yeah. horrible dad behavior. Cool guy. And that's, yeah, that's something I also want to get into in this book is, like, this book is really, in a lot of ways, about how the horrible behavior of adults ends up implicating their children and how, like, a lot of these children are just caught in situations that are 100% manufactured and preventable by the adults in their life who are supposed to be responsible. And yet then these children are like imbued with such a great sense of shame Mm -hmm. of these things having occurred that their lives end up. It's like generational trauma 101. 
Yeah, um, exactly. Because the adults can't be adults and deal with their shit. And um, it ends up in the children. So Hannah is really insecure about this this whole situation with her parents. And it drives her to eat and gain an unspecified amount of weight in her adolescence. That in the time after Allie's disappearance, she gets rid of the weight because she is bulimic. And she becomes friends with the girl who is formerly the dorkiest girl in school, Mona Vanderwall. And Mona also has what we today would call a glow up. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what formerly referred to as a glow up. Yeah. Uh, FKA glow up. <laughs> and they are kind of the new big popular girls in school. And they like to do reckless things like rob... And jewelry stores. Yeah. Drive cars drunk. Drink red wine. Yeah. Like these girls are really kind of what I would say. Because what in the time after the time jump, you know, everything is just talking about how basically how sexy Mona and Hannah are. Uh, Yeah. And so I would say they're kind of the definition of like pretty privilege. Like they go and drink (laughs) at bars because they're hot. And, and you know what? Aria has pretty things. privilege, too. Oh, 100%. There's a lot of pretty privilege in this book. Yeah. Um, I didn't dare go to Jamaican Station in no, Cincinnati. Well, I knew it wouldn't, they wouldn't cut it. Jamaican Station, it was not, if I could get stuff at Jamaican Station, Jamaican Station was not about pretty privilege. I was pulling up in my school uniform, like. <laughs> You're like 11th just, grade history textbook on I mean, life. literally, like, like fucking St. Ursula Academy sticker on the back of the car, yeah. fucking yellow school issued polo at 310 <laughs> Student PM. driver, please be patient. <laughs> yeah, literally, like pulling a four loco and texting all my boys that like it was on. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's kind of Hannah's main, you know, main grift in this book. But what ends up happening is that she's implicated in two, you know, crimes that she committed, which is first at the beginning of the book, she steals a Tiffany bracelet. Mm-hmm. And then at a big party scene, she gets pissed off that her boyfriend, Sean, has made a virginity pledge. And He's he refuses. Yeah. Uh, and he refuses to have sex with her in the woods. So she steals his dad's BMW that he's driven to the party. And she's like fucked up. And then she crashes it. And we and should so, mention that all of them are getting threatening text messages. I don't think that we've said that yet. No, we have not. Yeah. From this person named A. Basically showing them that they know their their deep secrets. But I think it's also important to mention that these are not very appropriate to 2006, which is when the book was published. They're not just text messages. They're sometimes texts, sometimes <laughs> emails, and sometimes IMs. Which, yeah, this is very multimedia. They were doing this yeah. off of their uh, their BlackBerry. BlackBerry. A definitely owns a BlackBerry. Or their Palm Pilot. <laughs> 100%. Um, and... So this leads, so this one cop, Darren Wilden, who's a graduate of Rosewood High School, where all of the girls attend, he ends up being kind of the main cop who's like having to deal with Hannah. And how does Hannah get out of it? 
her mom, her mom fucks, fucks the cop. Yeah. And it's What is she, a nurse um, practitioner? Yeah, literally. Jesus um, Christ. <laughs> <laughs> Ms. Marin out here acting like she's Nurse Marin, if you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> but, and we can talk about, because I really just want to, like, I think we'll probably spend half of this episode talking about the sexual relationships in this book. Yeah, uh, And how sex operates in this book, because it is jarring and definitely worth noting. But let's talk about what's going on with Arya. Um, Arya, after uh, Allie disappeared, her family moved to Iceland so her dad could work on a documentary. Um, and in Iceland, she was really cool. She fucked a lot of Icelandic boys, smoked pot, went to raves. And now she's back. And the first day back, she goes to a bar after she's dropped her uh, brother off for lacrosse practice. And who does she meet there but a really cute young guy who's going to teach English and I forget how they bond, but uh, I think it's because she's like, beer was so much better in Iceland. And he's like, yeah, yeah that's cool. Want to go to the bathroom and make out? There's so um, much. I mean, we'll talk about it, but there's so much wrong with yeah. the characterization of this relationship right off the bat. Absolutely. And so, of course, she goes to the first day of school. And who does that guy turn out to be but her English teacher? Um, now, of course, as a normal adult that he is, um, he continues the sexual relationship. Uh, he calls uh, her on her phone a lot. Um, additionally, while this is happening, she's dealing with kind of one of the reasons that she suspects her dad moved them to Iceland, which is right before um, she left, she and Allie saw her dad making out with one of his students, her dad's professor, in his car, and she so never. So there's told a parallel her mom. there. There's yeah, a literary parallel mm-hmm. um, uh, between yeah Aria's relationship with her teacher and this relationship that has traumatized her so much between her dad and a student. Absolutely. What about Spencer? Spencer. Ugh. So Spencer, I would say in this book, had the most disturbing. What I found to be the most disturbing kind of arc in this book. And this is a book where most of the girls have incredibly disturbing arcs. Um, Emily has a normal... Yes. Normal arc. 100%. The Emily... Which is funny because, you know, spoiler alert, but Emily's arc is that she's coming to terms with her queerness. Um, It's funny that... Emily's arc is the most disturbing because the least disturbing because Emily's arc is what stood out as being, you know, when I read this as a child as being the most sort of like deviant and interesting. The fact that she was gay when now as an adult reading these books, I see the rest of these sort of relationships and challenges that the girls are having as much darker and like in much more need of like being discussed. Um, So Spencer is the uh, class vice president. Um, And she uh, was Allison's next door neighbor and kind of lives a very, I would say out of the girls, she's probably the most wealthy, lives a very Mm -hmm. charmed life. Her parents. She has um, the barn. Yes. The barn that we talked about last episode. The barn. Capital T, the barn. Um, TB. TB. Like, literally. This is the barn. If you are ever talking about a barn, I I literally think you're talking about this barn, unless you (laughs) specify otherwise. Um, 
So Spencer, her family is very wealthy. Her father's a lawyer and her mom kind of operates a horse farm, which is like if your mom operates a horse farm, that means your dad makes the money and your mom operates the horse farm. You know what I mean? Right. Um, and that's so, gender roles, right? And that's gender roles. Gender roles <laughs> is when the man, it's like in a relationship, there needs to be the man who makes the money and the woman who operates a horse farm. Right. Um, and Spencer is like your, like your stereotypical, like try hard, like she is always getting straight A's in school and she's involved in like every extracurricular and she plays field mm-hmm. hockey and she's like a total overachiever and it's you know at least partially to do with the fact that she has this older sister melissa who is also an overachiever but managed to overachieve more than spencer right um and melissa is three years three or four years older than spencer um melissa was she just graduated undergrad yes Mm -hmm. um melissa was a senior in high school when the girls were in seventh grade um so do with that information what you will. That's the age gap. I don't I don't want to break that down. I don't want to do the math there. <laughs> home, pull up a piece of scratch paper and you figure out the age difference between the two of them because uh, that's not my job. I'm setting this clear boundary. Um, Thank you for setting do- boundaries with our listeners. You're I, I appreciate that. <laughs> um, so Melissa, there is a kind of recurring, you know, all of these storylines, the storylines that happen in the initial seventh grade and then that happen later on when the girls are in 11th grade, they're all kind of intrinsically linked. There's like parallels that are made to exist. So back in seventh grade, the first of many horrific relationships that we get in this book is Spencer seduces Melissa's boyfriend, Ian, Mm -hmm. and kisses him in an attempt to just, like, feel better than Melissa. And then pop forward to um, the present, the quote-unquote present storyline, and Melissa, at the beginning of the novel, brings home a new boyfriend, Ren, who will be moving Mm -hmm. in with her, but they have to stay at Spencer's parents' house for a while because Spencer's Spencer's parents are renovating a home for Melissa and this man, Ren, to live in. Um, And Spencer... Ends up kissing Ren, getting caught by Melissa. After he, like, we essentially we'll, we'll, grooms her into... Yeah, we'll get into we'll it. We'll get but. into it, because I have a... <laughs> there's a lot... There's a lot to say yeah. about that, and I, like, I want to make sure that, like, we mm-hmm. give... We connect it to all of the other horribly yeah. non-consensual relationships in this book. Absolutely. Um, so, they end up kissing. What the details of that don't matter. Melissa... Uh, it's in the barn right now. It's in the barn. <laughs> For the record, it's in TB, the barn. You know what we're talking about. You all know. Yeah. When I say the barn, you all know what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> when I say the, you say barn. The barn. The <laughs> barn. <laughs> um, people are going to hate us. Um, <laughs> yeah. Hey, you know what, Sophie? I actually scheduled a tweet to go out tonight that has a barn-related joke in it. So. Oh, okay. Incredible. So, actually, so we're us. setting them up. We're They're priming gonna, them, yeah. We're so funny. We're always fucking <laughs> serving it up. Um, uh, please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Um, <laughs> Say, wow, these girls are so good at improv and joking around. They really should have gotten into their respective college improv teams. Yeah. It's really weird that all their friends were on <laughs> and they were... <laughs> 
And even though they probably didn't care and probably didn't cry about it all the yeah, time. Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah. Um, so, um, and then Spencer's family effectively, like, disowns her over this whole her kissing yeah. Ren situation, which I'm sure we're going to talk about a lot. Yes. Um, and then, last but not least, do you want to talk about Emily? Yes. So, Emily, as we previously stated, kind of has the least, you know, I mean, it is traumatic, but um, I would say the least traumatic storyline out of the stuff Definitely. that's happening to her. So, when her and Allie were friends, um, she had feelings for Allie and kissed Allie. She sent Allie this letter that was confessing her love to her. Allie disappeared before uh, Emily got confirmation as to whether or not uh, Allie had read the letter. Now, um, a new neighbor moves into Allie's house, who is a girl around Emily's age, and Emily decides, not decides, but the she and the girl start hanging out. Um, Emily ends up kissing this girl, Maya, uh, and kind of... And that causes an issue because... Um, Emily does have a boyfriend at the time who is also on the swim team. And so the swim team is a big thing and her parents really want her to be on the swim team. So just imagine what they would say if yeah. they found out that she, she had feelings for another girl. But, um, and then let's say at the end of the book, what happens, which is that um, Maya's family is excavating the backyard because their son is like a tennis prodigy or and well it, it's important to note that maya has moved into allison's old house did you say that oh yeah i think i think i said that yeah okay sorry Maybe yeah. i didn't make it clear but yeah maya moved into Allie's house yeah which is also important and also again gives us a lot of parallels and sarah shepherd does a pretty good job at doing like here's their past storyline here's a parallel to their current storyline um but as they're excavating they find uh Allie's remains and that's kind of how the book ends yeah, um, the book ends, you know, they find the remains, there's the initial shock, and then the book ends with um, Allison's funeral mm-hmm. uh, and memorial service. Um, yeah. And, yeah, so that's kind of the rundown of what's happening. It's There's a lot of exposition in this book, but the exposition is really, I would say, like, plot-driven. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said before, when we talked about kind of initially the structure, like, the way that information is revealed in this book through the split narratives like each chapter Mm -hmm. is kind of it's an omniscient narrator but it's in the perspective of whatever girl we're kind of following and so information is revealed slowly kind of through the exploration of each girl's memories surrounding allison and her friendships with the other girls um so i think let's kind of get into it right away because this is what I'm champing at the bit to talk about, because I would say it's the biggest thing that was totally missing from my understanding of the book as a child. And it is like the biggest thing center in my uh, centered in my understanding of the book as an adult is sexuality and consent in this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right off the bat, like, would you say any sexual let's just say any sexual relationship between a man and a woman discounting Maya and Emily would you say any sexual relationship in this book is what we would consider today to be consensual I would say no 
including the relationship from Hannah to Sean. Including, big including that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the, so Hannah, the whole book basically is trying to pressure Sean to have sex. And multiple times she unbuttons his pants. Um, She cannot get enough of unbuttoning those pants. Yeah, she's always trying to unbutton his pants, even though he will legitimately say to her, Hannah, please stop. And I would argue that that relationship we are supposed to read that as her, you know, because we're supposed to read Hannah as a very self-destructive character. Yeah. And so I think that we are supposed to understand that relationship, even like if we don't have the language for it as maybe a 12-year-old reader, we are supposed to understand that relationship as non-consensual. Right. Or at the very least, her pushing both herself and, yeah, and him into a destructive place. Exactly. Because he's not... And this is what I thought was interesting about Sean is that he is not written as like, oh, what a dick for like leading Hannah on or whatever. Like there is some genuine sympathy towards him. Um, And and that's what I think is important. I think so too. And it's not, what did you think about, did you think there's any implication that he was gay? No, this is what I think it is. So Hannah's whole storyline is that she has a lot of insecurity regarding the fact that she used to be, the fat weirdo. Mm-hmm. And so I think that she contextualizes sex in this very kind of vulnerable state of being. You know, she's a teenager. She has all these bodily insecurities. She has a really tumultuous home life and tumultuous relationship with her parents. She's not getting a lot of attention around the house. She contextualizes sex as how he would show that he loves her and is attracted to her. Yes. And if so, like, he's not having sex with her, that then there's a problem. Exactly. Like, so right. there's actually a passage in the party scene. So Noel Kahn, who's like a very much a side character in this book, we'll get a lot more of him later on. He's like a popular lacrosse guy. He has a big rager out in the woods, like at his parents' like cabin or something. And... Hannah is trying to get Sean to have sex with her in the woods. And she says, well, I know Sean has signed this virginity pledge, but he, I know, I also know that he loves me. So obviously he'll want to have sex with me because he means that he doesn't want to have sex with anybody he doesn't love. Like she contextualizes in her head, the virginity pledge as him basically being like, I'm not going to fuck around. Right. Yeah, exactly. When really it's like a cut and dry, I'm not fucking until marriage. Yeah, absolutely. Like he, it's not about love for him necessarily. It's just, um, I was trying to find that passage, but. And so um, for Hannah, I have a passage to read about this. um, Oh, yeah. Pulled up. Um, So for Hannah, what's really interesting is sex is both her getting Sean to validate and approve of her and her body, but also there's a lot in this, um, in this book of what I would call like, and we've talked about it briefly on the pod before, but like in the reading we've done before, it's been less explicit. Um, what I would call like parasexual relationships where there's something sexual and something queer in how sex is used to, prove oneself to like one or as a performance for like one's peer group right Um, yeah so i have this passage from early in the book where we're still kind of meeting hannah and sean 
that says this. Dating Sean still felt like a dream. Back when Hannah was chubby and lame, she'd adored how tall and athletic he was, how he was always really nice to teachers and kids who were less cool, and how he dressed well, not like a colorblind slob. She never stopped liking him, even after she shed her last few stubborn inches and discovered defrizzing hair products. So, last school year, she casually whispered to James Freed in study hall that she liked Sean, and Colleen Rink told her three periods later that Sean was going to call Hannah on her cell phone that night after soccer. It was yet another moment at Hannah was pissed Allie wasn't there to witness. Yeah, exactly. Because what is most important to uh, Hannah was validation from Allie. Because Allie was kind of always twisting that knife of, like, oh, you're eating a little too much there. Um even though, and this was, is Allie's kind of whole MO with all the girls is that she will be, you know, kind of their shoulder to cry on about all their secrets. And then she will actively use it to manipulate them and even to keep them quiet, uh, from the other girls. Right. Um, so that's, what's really interesting is that we get this whole, this whole paragraph about how excited and how attracted Hannah is by Sean, but it ends in, it all being a performance that she wished Allie... Allie could see. Exactly. Where it's not yeah. like, I felt... I feel so kind of vindicated because finally, after my quote-unquote glow-up, this man is now attracted to me and sees me for who I am. It's... I could have used this to prove something to Allie. Because none of the language behind Hannah's... Um, when she's trying to get Sean to have sex with her is really even remotely, like, suggesting that she wants to do this for sexual reasons. It's always backed or ended by something about her being like, well, I guess he doesn't love me then. It's it's a status thing. Totally. And that's her. what that's what I think is so, and this can lead us into talking about some of the other relationships in this book, that's what's so, and it must be intentional on the part of the author, and it might even be a genius representation of the sexuality of teenage girls but none of the sex in the book besides the kissing between maya and emily nothing is about pleasure there is no language of pleasure there is no language really of desire even everything um, is about i would say that there's a little bit of language of desire with aria and spencer and obviously they are being taken advantage of but yeah Arya has desire towards Ezra, and I would say Spencer has, but the desire a little bit towards Ren, but it's more it's more competitive between her and Melissa. Yeah, I'm gonna push back on the desire between Arya and Ezra because it doesn't maybe and maybe I am kind of unfairly imbuing like our current as adults like the way that we would contextualize and denote desire. With, like, maybe I'm unfairly kind of projecting that into this book, but Arya, it's all performance, also. Like, when she is trying to seduce Ezra for the second time, <laughs> not after their initial hookup, it's her giving attention to another boy in class. Yeah, it's that's nothing true. about her wanting to be you know, like, oh, I want to be vulnerable with Ezra and I want to receive pleasure from him. It's like, it's a power game. But I would still call that, I feel like there is sexuality in that. I do think she's expressing sexuality in that way. Yes, but it's not, 
I definitely think it's sexuality, but I don't think it's honest desire divorced from all of these other social factors. And I guess desire can't be divorced from other social factors, but I don't think it's the same kind of, like, I wouldn't say there's any language of pleasure involved. Um, maybe, well, I'm going to disagree with that because I feel like once they almost fuck, she's like crazy scene. Yeah. She's like, wow, wow, wow. That was so great. Like, I feel so alive. I would say that certain but uh, she and she's into him at the bar when they first meet and certainly after she finds out that he's her teacher i mean that becomes a a framework for her to look at it where she is i mean that makes it dangerous for her that makes him all the more unattainable and thus more attractive but i do think that she i think for me why I, i or i like think that she is showing that much desire towards him is um, or why that really stuck out to me is reading it through the perspective of him taking advantage of a child yeah. who, who has a crush on him, essentially. Sure. Yeah, I guess I just am, I guess maybe I'm kind of projecting something into it that isn't in the text, which is... It's not a healthy one. And it's I think, not healthy, I, yeah. and it feels more like a child being excited that an adult notices her rather than being like i want to receive bodily sexual pleasure from him that yeah that's fair it is definitely a it's like a cat and mouse game especially because especially in those scenes where she is trying to seduce him at school she's like i i love oral presentations because my voice is so gravelly and we need to talk about that scene because i thought that that was horrific yeah it was crazy and then then later when Basically, I'm just going to get into it now, is um, Arya gives what I would say is a is a terrible presentation. Horrible. <laughs> what is it on? Is it on Waiting for Godot? Waiting for Godot, yeah. Yeah. And so Arya, she has flashcards for this too, but it's all like, when I was in Paris, I saw this play. The theater had plush velvet seats and you could smell butter wafting off of the street when you walked out for intermission. And Ezra's like, I got to stop you there. Like, this isn't about the book, which I was like, (laughs) okay, like, at least he's being a teacher. But then later he was like, I couldn't stand to see you up there. Yeah, he was like, it was turning (laughs) me on too much. It was so good (laughs) that it was turning me on. And it was like, no, Ezra, you're so fucking stupid. Arya, like, Uh, really annoyed me in this book. I mean, and I felt for her, but she was the... And she was not my favorite character on the show, necessarily, but, like, I think she's fine. But in this book, I was like, oh, you're annoying. Like, I would not... (laughs) There's a lot of issues... There's just a lot of issues with kind of her character i would say that her character almost is the least emotionally developed like we yeah like there's not no interiority about well maybe i could get in trouble exactly (laughs) there's literally no thought of like she's literally like why is he not texting me just before we keep (laughs) before we go i just want to note this really quickly Uh um is it what he's wearing when they meet at no at the bar okay no but that's important too i want to talk i want to go beat by beat through the ezra aria relationship but to contextualize it i want to talk about how the first and this is sort of should inform what what maybe we think about the author's thoughts on the sexual relationships in the book the first major literary illusion happens in the first scene where we first meet new hannah and mona um, where they're sitting in that place, Reeve Gauche, 
drinking red wine on a weekday during the day at a mall Comparing where they can be seen. Vogue, saying that a guy has a boner after flashing him. Yes. I want to give a note to all bartenders. If you see a person with a copy of Teen Vogue at a bar, <laughs> do not serve them. Yeah, there's, you know what, no matter what they're, hey, if they're 19, still too young. They illegal. can't drink. Illegal yeah, to illegal. serve them. Illegal. And I don't care if it's a 23-year-old who reads Teen Vogue. Illegal to serve them. Yeah. You, you can know be what? held personally liable in the state of Illinois, bitch. Absolutely. Do your if serve I was safe reading training. The Teen Vogue, I wouldn't want a bartender to serve me. I wouldn't no, deserve it. I wouldn't That's embarrassing. It. it should be a punishment is that I should not That's be allowed illegal. to That's illegal. Yeah, That's it's illegal. That's what it is. <laughs> um, so the first major literary illusion in this book is when they see that man who they say has a boner at the bar, they call him Humbert Humbert. Um, well hannah in her mind is like ah, mona wouldn't think that that was cool if i th- if i said he was humbert humbert yeah from lolita, but lolita is sexy which is telling us right away the author telling us right away that these girls think lolita is sexy mm-hmm. is either idiocy or genius and i'm gonna choose yeah. to believe that it's genius yeah um, i think this is a really pretty well-written book so yeah i'm yeah. gonna believe that that's on purpose i'm gonna choose to believe that it's genius the lolita reference is definitely on genius whether definitely on genius definitely genius but whether or not we want to contextualize it as such and i really think that it is supposed Mm -hmm. to kind of be a lens through which we can view this um view this book obviously if you don't if you're not aware humbert humbert is the character in lolita who you know has this sexual relationship with um his i believe his stepdaughter yeah or his girlfriend's daughter girlfriend's daughter yeah um who is like and lolita's from his perspective yes um i've never actually read lolita it's like you don't need to it like it's not that it's bad i really like you know it's the author's vladimir nabokov i really like Mm -hmm. nabokov but there's like I feel like there's so much conversation around this book that you just read it and you get disappointed because it's, right. you know, you're like, oh, yeah, this is just a book that's been kind of horrendously misunderstood and parodied throughout history. Like, yeah. and I know every plot point, point by point, um, mm-hmm. unlike yeah. these books, which I think are worth a reread. Yeah. Um, so Ezra and Arya, like you said, meet at this bar where... They are drinking scotch at 2 p.m. on a weekday. Mm-hmm. and Normal for him to be in there as an adult. Very normal. Right. That's my question. So right away we're meeting this man. She pulls up to the bar in her parents' car, mm-hmm. literally being like, will the bar be open because it's 2 p.m. on a weekday? Right. And she goes in and there's a man drinking scotch there at 2 p.m. on a weekday. That's not something where when I read that as at 13... That would have caused me alarm. And, you know, Sophie, not only is he drinking scotch at at 2.30 p.m., he also has a corduroy jacket and a button that says smart women vote, which to me seems condescending. I have to say, men shouldn't be wearing (laughs) badges that say smart women vote. Yeah. Also, like, that was another thing. 100% that stood out to me as, like, as a child, I never would have caught that. But I don't think, from an adult perspective of, like, the person writing this, I do not think we are supposed to like him. 
no, absolutely not. Because he also, at one point, Arya comes back to his house after they've, she, like, he, like, calls her and is like, come over, I'm horny. He basically booty calls her. Yes. Um, invites a, the child a to his house. Yes. A 16-year-old. Excuse me, a 16-year-old. Yeah, 16. Yeah. Um, and so she... And then the next day, she, like, left her phone there, and then there's essentially a miscommunication with the text that A is sending. He sees them. Um, and she is tries to leave the house. She's, like, trying to explain herself, and he slaps his hand over her mouth. And then she, like, bites his hand, probably as you should do if a, if an adult man is slapping Attacks his hand you. over your mouth. Yeah. yeah. And then as she, as she leaves... Um, he he throws like a philosophy book at her he head. He throws a Sartre, a Sartre, yeah. a Jean-Paul Sartre text at her head, which is also a treat for adult readers. The fact that right. this man who is so condescending and like abusive towards her literally throws a Sartre book at her head. Right. As it's she crazy. exits. It's I mean, it's like totally, totally fucking bizarre. Um the first time they hook up is in the bathroom of this bar and she is drunk. She's falling off of her seat. Yeah. She's falling off of her bar stool. And, and she says, her I'm going to go to the bathroom. And he says, can I join you? Dude. <laughs> this is like the relationship that I found so sexy. Like when I first read this book, I found this yeah. so hot. I was like, this is incredible. This is hot. And like, this is horrifying and i'm not even saying this in like a judgy like oh you couldn't write this today like i genuinely believe that we are supposed to be horrified by this yeah i think we are and like it kind of goes back into what you're saying and well and let's talk about um the ren stuff as well it's very similar yeah very similar in that um these children are constantly being taken advantage of by adults and i think and maybe Maybe it's possible that as we continue to read these, his character becomes more, you know, I guess sympathetic because I know that they do stay together for a while because I'm, that's my issue with it is I'm like, would she, we'll, we'll have to see because I'm interested I, in seeing yeah. where his character goes. I want to ask a question really quick mm-hmm. to just continue to inform this discussion mm-hmm. that was striking me throughout this entire book is like this the power and the perceptions of power seem to be incredibly skewed in this universe Mm -hmm. purposefully so where it's like who has power who is perceived as having power in a given situation and why right yeah so kind of maybe speak on ren and spencer in that sure so yeah in 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 this context of of the power dynamics so uh ren is melissa's boyfriend he essentially he's a doctor and he keeps so like spencer no he's a medical student oh he is a medical student that's true he's a first year medical student yeah um and you know spencer thinks he's cute and he essentially goes out of his way to constantly find ways to be touching her under the guise of like well let me massage you which i thought was also crazy because i'm like doctors are not masseuses doctors are not no. chiro- or med students like like this motherfucker is probably talk- on his first anatomy like yeah he's i was like, gonna not, say like- do you know what a do you know what a first year of med school is like because like I, textbook work it's yeah like, yeah you're not you're fully not even engaging in any sort of clinical shit yet no you are in the classroom this man doesn't yeah. know anything no, absolutely not. Like, he's, like, doing his flashcards on Quizlet of, like, 
gout symptoms like he's not your yoga aunt knows more about like muscles than this motherfucker does yeah my my yoga mom (laughs) excuse me excuse you (laughs) not to microaggress no he like is like um yeah that's that was crazy to me and perhaps i've just had chiropractors on the brain because I'm aching for a back crack, but I was like, he's not a chiropractor. Like, no. that's what I kept thinking. I'm like, is he going and to he's not a physical because therapist. that's not... No, he's not a physical therapist. He's no one that would know anything. And that's kind of crazy to me because I'm like, I don't think most med school doctors, like, I'm guessing, like, he's doing, like, internal medicine background work. Like, he's not learning about muscles, yeah. whatever. Um, he keeps finding ways to touch her, and eventually when they do kiss, after he essentially comes into her room and is like, I'm so horny, I, I have to fucking kiss you right now, Sh- Spencer is blamed for it. And it and Spencer is seen as having all the power in that situation. Right. It's, it's worse that Spencer did it than that Ren did it. And it's, yeah, that is what really is, irks me, and I think is supposed to irk us about I think Spencer so. in particular, is that when she is in seventh grade... She is kind of blames herself for seducing her sister's 18-year-old boyfriend. Right. Which is also, that is even perhaps a more egregious, like, creepy relationship. Yeah. Either way, it's, so what, it probably, it's the like, same age gap. 20, 23 to 17, <laughs> or to 16, and then 18 to 13. It's the same. Either way you slice it, not good. <laughs> but but what I think about is kissing a 12-year-old. Yeah, that is always like and that is a that's a kind of a big issue in YA media too. Even in the idea of like, oh, freshmen are gonna go out with seniors, and it's like that is not Not okay. I get that that's yeah, and it's it's just like kind of weird because it's like that maturity rate happens so much. Yeah, like a senior kissing a 12-year-old is weird. Yeah, that would it's be just, something where if people found out about that, you would be ostracized for it. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Like, kissing a 12-year-old, like, if you just think about the very simple, and I guess the reason, like, the age gap between when she was 12 and when Ian was a senior is a little bit more egregious to me than, like, what do- what bugs me about the Spencer-Ren relationship is not necessarily the age gap, even though that's a factor. It, it more so is the power dynamic of the fact that, like, mm-hmm. he's a man she doesn't really know. He's kind of seen as being a doctor, and he's living in her family's home. Um, and he keeps finding ways to touch her body at all. Yeah, and he keeps finding ways to be, like, you know, in the hot tub with her, touching her body. What stands out to me more about the 12 to 18 age gap is the differences in, like, literal physical maturity. Where, like, a 12-year-old yeah. looks like a child. You know what I mean? Like, one of the yeah, children it, I babysit is 12, like, for anybody yeah. and that's to a kiss child. them. 100%. You're a child until, I mean, in my mind, you are a child until you are 21. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whether that's accurate or not. No, I I'm, feel I'm the same way. Yeah. I just don't, like, for anybody to be kissing a 12-year-old who's not also a 12-year-old. 12, yeah. Is, like, a huge, huge, like, like you have problems. Like, you need to, like, work yeah. on something. I'm thinking about that because, like, my high school was 7th through 12th grade. I'm thinking of me as a senior. Um, I- I'm going to give you guys some high school lore of mine. Um, we called 7th graders, I mean, I didn't, but culturally within my school, 7th graders were called Effies. Because what? like the, because it was like A B C D E F. Because you all fucked them. 
Yeah, because we all fucking back. But um, these effies, the big deal was that their backpacks were so fucking huge because this school was, and that was you know, funny? terrible. And yeah, because it, they looked like turtles and they, they, I mean, and it was sad. They, I mean, they were small, tiny children with like, three huge latin textbooks in their backpack and they didn't know how to use their lockers that was a big deal which um, is hilarious it's so hilarious imagine the child doesn't know how to operate like an antiquated piece of like quasi machinery yes exactly so you know i thought that that's what comes to mind for me is me being a senior in high school and you know it's right. gross yeah it's <laughs> for you to have kissed one of those kids would have been predatory Yes, absolutely. Um, also, we should note that he, she doesn't even... She's flirting with him, but, I mean, Ian kisses her. Yeah. He he leans in to, to kiss her. Right. So, yeah. Either... Yeah. Not good. It just doesn't work. It's like... It no. um, is gross and bad. Yeah. And, and I think that we are supposed to mark it as gross and bad, but perhaps not as gross and bad as we, the modern reader, Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, because I also don't necessarily think that we are supposed to, like I said with Ezra, I know that he's going to become more sympathetic. And with Ren, I think that that's written in an even more sympathetic light, but I think that what is not written as sympathetic is her parents and sister blaming her for it. But I think that, I think that there is some validation on the author's end of their like connection or whatever. And I think he's going to come back. Yeah, I just, that, like, I don't know, it really rocked me to my core that Spencer's family blamed her for it, and there was no, like, they were- And her dad was like, I'm mortified to have you as my daughter. Yeah, when, like, I just can't imagine, like, how unsafe as a person that would make you feel. Like, that's, like, almost, like, psychological terror- well, they said if, if you weren't underage, we would kick you out. Literally. Like, they're basically doing, like, a soft disown on her. Yeah. Um, <laughs> a soft disown. Yeah. And it's, like, it's just, it's horrifying because the relationship, like, he very much, like, pounces on her in the barn and kisses her and takes her top off. Yeah. And she He's is. like, I need of, to fuck you now. Yeah. And it's, like. Why the bigger question should be why is this guy moving in with this with his girlfriend and trying to fuck her 17-year-old sister? Yeah. Exactly. That I want to know question. his story. That's the biggest question. Because I can tell you if I, you know, if like let's say I was so my sister is like the same age gap between Spencer and her sister. Mhm. If so, if I, you know, d- Take even take Nick, my boyfriend, out of it. If I brought a man home and No, put I, Nick back in. Let's <laughs> Yeah, put Nick okay, let's let's put Nick back in. Nick up. What if your what if your girlfriend your older sister brought her boyfriend home and he kept saying that the clothes that you were wearing weren't Japanese street weary enough and he had to undress you and put on a, a, a kimono. A kimono, an item from Essence.com. Right, and like um, like a supreme long sleeve. <laughs> um, no, but if, yeah, so like, for example, my boyfriend and my sister 
spend a lot of time alone together. Like they do a lot mm-hmm. of this, like they like to hang out together. Um, they like go to the gym together. They spend a lot of time alone together. Has it ever crossed my mind one time that they would ever kiss each other? Absolutely yeah. not. That should, first of all, just never be even in the qualm of, or in the realm of what you could imagine happening. Second of all, you know, should that kind of relationship emerge, I would 100% be like, this is his fault. Yeah. This when, is absolutely and you might 100% be, you might be on like him. Annoyed, and I, but I think that both of us, twere that to happen, would be like, I, I mean... If everyone's a consenting adult, you would probably be mad at your sibling. But especially if, you know, if it's a, if your teen sibling did this, it'd be like, no way. Like, this is, yeah, I'd be like, this why is, is my 23 year old boyfriend trying to, like, even thinking about kissing an 18 year old? That I, I am going to read this section. Please. This is one of the first times he, like, touches her. So, um, so basically, Ren says, I can fix, um, your shoulder or whatever. She strained it in field hockey. Um, uh, your shoulder muscle. He motioned for her to come closer. Come here, seriously. We just need to soften the muscle. Spencer tried not to read into that. He was a doctor after all. He was being doctorly. She drifted to him and he pressed his hands into the middle of her back. His thumbs dug into the little muscles around her spine. Spencer closed her eyes. Wow, that's awesome, she murmured. You just have some fluid buildup in your bursa sack, he said. Um... When he reached under her sports bra to dig deeper, she swallowed hard. She tried to think about non-sexual things. Um, He's a doctor, she told herself. This is just what doctors do. Your pectorals are a little tight, too, Ren said, and horrifyingly moved his hand to the front of her body. He slid his fingers under her bra strap again, rubbing just above her chest, and suddenly the bra strap fell off her shoulder. Spencer breathed in, but he didn't move away. This is a doctor thing, she reminded herself again. But then she realized Ren was a first-year med student. He will be a doctor, she corrected herself, in one day in about ten years. Um, where's my sister? She asked quietly. The store, I think, Wawa? <laughs> this is a sexual Wawa. assault. Yeah, it's, no, it is. And the fact that she, that horrifyingly is written yeah, in I, there. I forgot about, I, I remember, like, this passage and reading it and being like, oh, this is literally a description of a sexual assault. Yeah. But I forgot that the language was really that clear, which is her reminding herself. It's just so, it's so teenage girl. And that's what I think is right. so genius about the writing is... having to remind herself that he's a doctor and then that sentence of him horrifyingly moving his hand to the front of her bra Mm -hmm. um, paired right after the sentence of her being like, well, he will be a doctor. Yeah. It's just, um, it is really genius writing, but it is the, it's the Lisey question once again is, can we hold 13 to 15 year olds responsible for picking up on that? And I don't, I think I may have clocked it a little bit as a teen, but I mean, certainly not to the extent that I, I clocked it now. 100%. Uh, in terms of, especially the Ren stuff. I don't think that I, I think I read it as like, oh, that's not her fault. Like her parents shouldn't blame her for that. But I don't think I read it really as him being that creepy. Right. And that's also a lot of times in a lot of media, you take that for granted of a not so much now. But I would say 10 years ago, yeah, like a teen having a relationship with someone in their early 20s was not uncommon in in media. Yeah, I think that 
um, definitely the comment about your comment about the age gap is correct. But yeah. really, like I said, I really think that what makes this relationship so particularly inappropriate and um, misbalanced the is power the power level. the power level of her kind of believing one that he's a doctor and or two that least, he's like entering her house like he right. like is invaded her space, her space essentially and they are and is using that against her exactly um and then there's this uh, another scene that i found to be really kind of horrifying is not horrifying horrifying is a very strong word but very you know that gave me a lot of pause was after Allison's remains are discovered and Ren comes to Spencer's house again uh, when her mother and father and older sister Melissa are gone. And he, you know, is like, oh, like, we're going to be together. Like, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to comfort you. This, that, the other. And it's like, when did this turn into a relationship? All of a sudden, he's putting all of this, like, love language in. And yeah. All they've done is kiss in uh, capital T, capital B, the barn. Yeah. And that's especially paired with the idea that her family is, like, wrongfully, you know, distancing themselves from her and quasi, or, like, soft disowning her. That's even more, um, uh, uh, like, abusive in the fact that he's like, okay, now let's double down on that. And it's not even like, I'm sure you and Melissa will work it out. Like you, you guys are sisters. That's more important. It's like no, I'm going to take you away from your family now. Yeah, I'm going to isolate you. He doesn't acknowledge any wrongdoing. Of no. like, oh my god, I took this too far. Look at how it's blown up to affect both of our lives. Let's still be together. Like it's like all of a sudden he has this whole like romantic like run away with me vibe, and it's yeah. like, <laughs> yeah, the, the horns start blaring. Carly yeah. Ray hops out of the car. Um, but yeah, it's really, I don't know, it's really upsetting and we are kind of, I see both Spencer and Arya, but more so Spencer as like victims of these really sort of malicious men. Yeah. These men who don't realize they're being malicious and are treating these, and it goes back to my question of power, they're treating these sexy 16 year olds like their sexuality gives them a legitimate power in a relationship. Right. Which it doesn't. No. And that's the thing is I think that that's one of the main things themes of this book is that teenage girls power we cannot define it as resting in their sexuality. It's inappropriate for us to do so because what we have really are these like hollowed out scared confused little girls. Yeah, and that's where it, and I I know that we've talked about this before, but that's why, I mean, I find the, um, essentially, I'm going to call it suck-a-dick feminism. And that's when it's like, the most powerful thing you can do is be in charge of your own sexuality. But it's not taken in a way that is, um... And because a lot of times this is teen girl to teen girl doing this. It's like, if you use your sexuality and you're in charge of it, that's going to make you powerful. And in a sense, it does in the fact that sex is, is, tends to be the number one um, kind of thing that women have to offer a lot of the time, you know. In the, in the context of like 
patriarchal power. Uh, yeah, exactly. Dynamics. Not not yeah. A, yeah. No, 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 just, no. I know. I just yeah. About, yeah. Yeah, but um, but in another way, it's like that. And that's a hard, fine line to walk between because that either becomes it's like there's only two paths. Kind of, it's like either yeah, you you go fuck him, girl. Like be a hoe. Like that's gonna make you happy or two no like guard your heart like you know deny that that's gonna make you happy right and either one may be true but it doesn't give anyone the neither of those um paths of encouragement i mean i know i've talked about this like in their own ways yeah exactly and like i just feel like there's stuff that i forced myself into sexually that i was not ready for but i was like, well, this is what power is. Totally. Absolutely. It's like, either way, you end up... And that's like, in the very beginning of the book, in the seventh grade kind of introduction, um, in the seventh grade introduction, Allison and Spencer particularly are seen as like using their sexual... Like, they know that they can use their sexualities to like, like... Spencer is like, oh, I want revenge on Melissa for being mean to me my entire life. I'm going to flirt with her boyfriend. And her context of, like, using sexuality as a 12-year-old is flirting. And then this man, his context of sexuality or his ballpark of sexuality is kissing. And so he pushes her up against the car and he kisses her. And all of a sudden it becomes these two mismatched sort of representations and ideas of what sexuality is to these two different groups of people. Yeah. And Allison, same thing. She's fucking 12 years old, but she hangs out with all these high school girls and smokes cigarettes with them. And she's seen... Let's let's also talk about... Let's talk about the cigarette thing. Because that was... Did you notice that? Every fucking teen in this book is smoking. It was 2006. Every teen was smoking in 2006. Yeah. This was, like, think true. about, like, Paris Hilton era, where, like, if you were hot and skinny, you were smoking. You were smoking, yeah. Yeah, it's that's what... It's suppressant. Exactly. Like, today, that's more jarring to us, because teens are vaping instead. <laughs> yeah. Um, we should do a find and, like, control F and go through, and when they say, like, Marble <laughs> Rose, be like, they were puffing on their mango jewel. <laughs> right, exactly. But it is, like... Yeah, it's weird to be like, why the fuck, how the fuck are these teens all smoking cigarettes? But it, it is, I think it's a 2006 thing. Okay, that's fair. Yeah. Um, I would like to, if you're down for it, move into a little bit of an Emily discussion and kind of a, a fun thing that I have yeah. to discuss with you. I have a question for you. Unless you had any final wrap up on the, on the sexuality power th- stuff. No, I think it's going to be... Um, that's going to be a theme, I'm sure. Yeah. And it's really interesting. Like, that's really why I would recommend a reread of these books, because it is... I know we jokingly, in our interview with a friend of the pod, John Dale, in the Chicago Reader, we jokingly referred to Pretty Little Liars as a rich text. But it genuinely is. It is. It <laughs> yeah. 100% is. There is something in there for an adult reader. Absolutely. Um, what I want to talk about with Emily is, a lot of times throughout this book, she's either drinking vanilla Coke... Or going to a vending machine where she can get vanilla Coke. Or thinking about how much she likes vanilla Coke. My question for you is, is vanilla Coke queer? Yeah. Yes or no? (laughs) 100%. Like, no qualifiers. And I think that it is... 
something that we, the informed reader, could read as being a specific and intentional mark of her queerness. Yes, I think so too, because it's like a modifier on yes. Coke. It's and I've different. never seen it. I ain't never seen a straight person drinking a vanilla Coke. <laughs> Always straight one up. Of them gotta be queer. <laughs> I used to go to Aglamisi's and out. I would get a vanilla lemon Coke. And that was my thing. Wow. Because I couldn't, I couldn't have their ice cream there oh. uh, for peanut reasons. But also if I was just like walking, if I walked to the blue manatee, yeah. um, I would get uh, that the vanilla lemon coke and i always do that if hey if i'm at a amc and they've got that coke freestyle machine you know i'm adding vanilla and lime to my coke wow um yeah do you know you know about a coke freestyle machine yeah are you fucking kidding me i've been to the (laughs) fucking noodles and company um i'm gatekeeping your uh yeah are you kidding me this is fucked up you speaking to me in that way is ultimately disrespectful and like calling into question my humanity and ability to think for myself (laughs) yeah um sorry i just kind of thought you were more of like a pepsi right yeah i wanted to make a joke that like um the Lana Del Rey song, like, my pussy tastes like Pepsi Cola. Yeah. About the vanilla Coke and, like, maybe, <laughs> oh, does it taste like pussy or, like, something like that? But it doesn't. It doesn't track. My pussy Coke. tastes like Diet Raspberry Mr. Pib. <laughs> oh, my God. Does that that means you have, like, a yeast infection or something. Yeah. Something's seriously wrong. Get that thing checked out. Yeah. So let's talk about Maya and Emily. My question mm-hmm. for you, generally, and I have some passages pulled, but I'm sure you do, too. How do we feel about the language of, like, exploratory queerness that's used? You know, I thought it was, it kind of goes with, um, and I don't think this is bad or necessarily untrue to a lot of people, but the way that Emily discovers her queerness is she, she, like, knows deep down that it's true and she's trying to hide it from herself, and I think, at least for myself, and I know for a lot of other people, that the way that they discovered their queerness was they just didn't realize that those feelings were queer. And, exactly. But Emily, it's like, she's like, I oh, I know that I want to kiss girls. Like, I know something's wrong with me. Like, repress, I have to, like, stop repress. myself from doing yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Versus, like, oh, like, I don't, un- I'm not understanding this feeling as queer. Part of what we might be reading is like an outdated literary conception and popular conception of queerness, like language that people don't really use anymore of like, I don't feel the same way about boys that I do about girls. And like, I'm confused. And also this language of like closetedness and like people secretiveness surrounding queerness, instead of it being more of like a, I'm confused about my sexuality. It's I know my sexuality. I've known my sexuality and I do not want to share it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, Um, Yeah. So I think there are a couple like marquee moments in this relationship that I want to talk about. Um, I'll start with when they, well, I don't know. How do you want to start? I mean, I feel like this this relationship 
it, it just kind of was the not the least interesting storyline, but there's the there's the least meat on the bones of this storyline. Yeah. So I I mean there's like some stuff where I thought this was not odd, but Emily's mom decides she doesn't like Maya. She's like, she's the wrong type of girl because Maya is black. Well, and I found that really interesting. Yeah, I because it like... It's because interesting. What, yeah. what happens in that scene is that Maya... Emily is detecting that her mother is uncomfortable with Emily being friends with Maya. And right. her mom's saying she's the wrong type of girl using language like that. And Emily thinks it's because her mom knows Maya's gay. Right. But it turns out to be that Emily's mom is just racist. Racist. <laughs> yeah. And but homophobic. We, we learn later. So a double, learn, double whammy. Super double whammy. Yeah. Um, I mean, this woman doesn't get out much. It's pretty clear. Uh, I think that Emily's family is also coded to be one of the more wealthy families too. Like everybody is wealthy, but specifically... Yeah. They might have more money well, than others. she selects ceramic chicken, so... Yeah. I, did I tell you I bought a ceramic chicken? No, that's cute. Where do you buy Yes, at Home Goods. <gasps> that's cute. They're cute. They're so... Okay, like, honestly, like, I'm a... I, like, it's fine to hate on people who have ceramic chickens, but I went to Home Goods, and, like, obviously it was, like, super cheap, and I kept passing it and passing it and passing it as I, like, wandered the aisles of Home Goods, and finally I was like, you know what? I want this fucking ceramic chicken, and I'm not going to judge myself for it. I'm going to indulge, yeah. so now I have a little ceramic chicken on my bookshelf. Is it is it within arm's reach? You'll have to send uh, me no. a photo of it later. I'll, I'll post a photo on our Instagram. Very cool. Um, but, yeah, so that I found to be really interesting because it's like... I don't know. Like, what do you think of that whole thing? I, I just found that to be... I, I don't know. It was just interesting because I felt like it was kind of kicking the can forward of Emily having to confront any of her gayness, which is fine. But I'm like, okay. I feel my what I think is going to happen. And I know I read these books before, but I don't remember the minutia of this is I think that like the racism part of that is going to kind of be forgotten. That That's almost felt to me too. like like a diversion or like a like an R.L. Stein, like, you know, like, oh, like, he, I felt a ghost grab me. It was just yeah. my mom. Like, like that, it that was felt a, a similar thing. Yeah, like... It was a kind of, branch. <laughs> right, it was a device for one scene that we're never going to see again. Yes, that's how I feel about it, yeah. Okay, and I think I probably agree with that. I just think, I don't know, for it to be, for there to be, like, a racist, like, a oh, like, an acknowledgement that this woman is literally racist in a children's book mm -hmm. from 2006, I was like, oh, that's noteworthy. Because it also, yeah. it doesn't appear in the TV show because in the TV show, Emily is a person of color. Right, yeah. Um, you okay, know, wait. I was just going to say that the hair colors were very off-putting to me in this book because they're totally different than on the TV show. I don't know if you had that experience, but yes, it was very hard for me to read, like... Mona's blonde hair when obviously I'm picturing Janelle Parrish of Dancing with the Stars. Exactly. Jan yeah. Um, just one say? more thing I wanted to say about Maya and Emily in the vein of what you said is like this like kind of stupid device of them being yeah. like, oh no, Emily's mom is being racist in this scene, not homophobic. She'll be homophobic in the next scene. Right. And um, it's like the race thing is not going to come back. It's not like, going to come it, back. So it's like kind of like, well... It feels weird in this book about no. all white characters to be like, oh, no, she's racist instead. And then it to be like that, that right. will go away. 
So also what I found to be just kind of like a, like something that was super unnecessary was um, the detail about Maya self-harming. Yeah, that was weird. Because it also added nothing. It was like they just wanted to pile another sort of like red herring onto this plot line or like an after school special kind of like also the kids are cutting like yeah exactly i thought it would just i mean it would have made perfect sense oh also i thought it was interesting that maya's from california because i feel like in almost every ya book if a new girl comes she's from california 100 percent. it's like or from a warm state she's from florida or california yeah maya's claire maya is claire all right how do we want to wrap this up do we want to share maybe like predictions moving forward Yeah. I mean, the thing is, I remember, at least from these first four books, I remember pretty well, I think, what happens when I'm going to not remember or slash have not read. um, Okay, well, my ultimate prediction is that I think that um, the race thing will not be brought up again. Okay. I'm going to put money on that now. Okay. I, I'm willing to, I'm willing to hedge that bet. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I also think that do you think that um do you think that we're there's gonna be a quality drop off in the next book? Um, I'm gonna say that there's gonna be a quality drop in the next four. Like after okay. one, two, three, four. I think that these were probably all written pretty close in conjunction. And then I I think yeah. after that there may be a quality drop off. What do you think? Okay. I'm also I'm also willing to honor that prediction. I'm worried that there's gonna be a quality drop off in book yeah. two. I really hope there's not. But yeah, I, can re- I can see it happening because this book is such a, gives us such a rich world. And I, what I hope doesn't happen, and like I said, you know, we've obviously read these, but we don't remember them that well. What I hope doesn't happen is it's like, they treat book two, just like you're turning the page from book right. one. Like, yeah, I hope they I hope really it's... are like, no, this is also a novel. Right. Yeah, me too. I'm excited to keep reading these, though. I think these this will be good. Oh, my, yeah, my other prediction is that Ezra and Ren are going to be written more sympathetically in the next couple of books. I think that they're going to be backtracking. Yeah. I don't know how long Ren is in these books, because as I'm reading, and maybe I'm, like, mixing the TV show and the books in my mind. As I'm reading, I'm thinking about, like, Spencer has all these other male, you know, love interests. Yeah, lovers, yeah. Throughout the books. So I'm kind of thinking, I could honestly see us opening book two and Ren being like, it being like a quick like, and Ren had Ren a new, went to a new medical school in a new town. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Ren decided True. to fuck with the wrong girl and do like some shitty chiropractor and like she killed yeah. him or something. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah. I'll be excited to see awesome. that. what happens. Continue to, you know, follow along, guys. Um, <laughs> you can find us on social media, on Twitter and Instagram, at Girls Like Us Show. You can check out our website, www.girlslikeus.show. You can find a lot more podcasts similar to ours at uh, frolic.media slash podcasts. Go into the App Store and rate us five stars. Comment how much, I don't know, you're enjoying our Pretty Little Liars content or maybe give constructive criticism but if you give constructive criticism give us five stars it doesn't harm you or your family to do so <laughs> no it's free it's yeah, free, free to give us five stars yeah don't tell and them also that's free. freedom of speech <laughs> yeah no exactly go on, guys go on parlor um get we're starting a parlor <laughs> profile go give us five stars yeah 
Really bad time for us to start on the